Hello and welcome to Talking Bottom. I'm Matt Brooks. I'm Paul Tanter. And I'm Ange Pearson. Welcome to the new series of Talking Bottom, series four, I believe we're calling it. It's, well, it is the fourth series would be the reason why we're calling it. Of Talking Bottom, yeah. Of Talking Bottom, yeah. yeah the, it's the anniversary the series, The anniversary series where we're going through overarching themes of Bottom um, and things that they've influenced, been influenced by. And just like a general thing to stay relevant, even though we've run out of episodes to talk about. <laughs> this episode, we are calling it The Human Condition. Mainly, as a jumping off point, based on the play by Samuel Beckett, Waiting for Godot. Now, something that I stumbled upon, asked backwards at the end of like series two of Bottom, the Bottoms Out episode, I kind of just thought, oh, I've noticed a little bit of a comparison to this and Waiting for Godot. I wonder if anyone else has stumbled upon this and it turns out that yes a lot of people have noticed this and recognized themselves study drama at manchester uni where no doubt they would have come across this play i don't know if they wanked to it why it would come across they came across it came across yes maybe maybe after challenging yeah (laughs) well as an a-level drama student myself at the very intelligent and mature age of 17 we were given a bunch of sketches to perform from various plays part of a movement called the theatre of the absurd we were given weird plays like i can't even remember the names of some of them but there was a dusty old couple in a pair of dustbins uh, or trash cans if you're american a boy that woke up uh, as a cockroach and his family are in horror with with this transformation happening and a couple of old tramps talking about the human condition standing by a tree anyone that studied drama will come across beckett who uh, mm-hmm. but waiting for Godot is probably his most famous work is one of the first plays to make such a big thing out of non-action and pauses, getting into existential philosophy and surreal concepts. And in the same way that fire has gone on to influence inventions like the car and space travel, Beckett's influence crop up in many, many, many different things, things that you wouldn't really think about. But fuck me, it is hard work <laughs> when you first start reading it, especially as an angry teenager. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of different podcasts who are going to talk about theatre and Beckett in much more intelligent detail than we we would well we're gonna be comparing it with bottom and we're gonna be trying to ground it in that rather than just going on and on and on about yeah. the one play and analyzing it yeah and, and of course all, all, although i will say if there's anyone listening looking to learn something for their gcse a level or degree course thinking you want to get some nugget or insight Go somewhere else, okay? Because <laughs> we're not you're, unless you're writing a comparative thesis <laughs> on Bottom and Beckett. Yeah, but we're not pretending to be experts on this. No, but I do have someone that's uh, an expert on not only Waiting for Godot but the performance of Waiting for Godot. I've been in touch with the agent of Mr. Adrian Emerson, and he's actually he's going to phone in today at some point. It's meant to be. We'll, we'll just edit it in seamlessly at a point, but we're waiting for him to call, and that will happen as part of this. This thing will, okay. you know, so we can't finish until they've called. No, so we are waiting for Edison, okay. but and he, then we will. He said yesterday that he was going to call, and he didn't. Did he? When did yeah. he say this? Do don't, don't you remember? Yesterday, I don't yeah. remember this. Oh. When was? I don't what know. happened yesterday? Maybe it didn't happen. Okay. But we but, a, a boy came in and told us that he's he definitely going to call, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. He, he okay. assured us he would call today. Okay. Cool. Okay. I guess we'll just hang around and do nothing. Okay. So, what year did this come out? come out that's a it's like a film <laughs> beckett wrote it i believe between something like 49 and 53 it took him a few years to actually 
get it all together. And he, and he wrote it originally in French, right? He, we, I don't know if he was French. Godot or no, Godot, people he, in America mispronounce it as Godot. Well, I mean, may mispronounce, I don't know. Is Beckett that... wasn't French, he was Irish. Okay. Just to make sure we've, we've definitely got that. But he was living in Paris at the time. Mm. And he wrote a lot of his plays in French and mm. translated them into English for, I don't know, a reason that... What, well, presumably he was presenting them in French to the French audience where he was and then obviously they got translated and they went round round the world. Yeah. Yeah, when I was reading about it, the things I read said that it was generally inferred that the two main characters were probably Irish. It's not said explicitly, but it's sort of generally assumed to be that. It's got some vibe of it. Right. It's funny, I've watched the the version I've watched which is on YouTube is the Irish one. I think as in as in it's two Irish actors who are playing it and with the accents it, it seems to play really well for me, but yeah. I haven't watched any other, so I'm sure it would be amazing to watch it in any other language or in, in, in any other accent, but it felt right to hear it in that lilting Irish. Complaining, self-effacing. Yeah. The just, back and forth, the, the, the talking over each other very quickly in, in yeah. the sex and stuff. It, that it, it really is a two-hander, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, just the waiting for Goddard. It's, it's, it's just really worked. It's funny you mention that because I, so I watched probably the same one that you watched, the two Irish guys on a, on a very grey sort of yeah, large it's set. it's the TV version. Yeah. I thought it was better to watch that because I'd love to watch it in the theatre, but mm. I feel sometimes watching theatre plays on camera, yeah. you lose a lot in translation. So yeah. I thought, well, I'll watch the one that's meant for telly. I watched that and I thought, yes, the performances from the two guys... And with their their accents and their ages, mm-hmm. they came across with a certain amount of gravitas. They felt now I I'm sure this will be something we'll talk about. They felt to me like they could have been there for a thousand years, mm-hmm. living yes, in the absolutely. same place. But then I didn't watch all of the, an American one, but I did watch like the first ten minutes of an American version with the actor Zero Mostel, who people would know as the agent in the producers. Mm-hmm. I think it's the agent, yeah. Um, the Gene Wilder uh, version of the film. Mm. And I watched it and it was him and someone else. And it was like such a different thing. It's like two wisecracking Americans. That half the time one of them was kept on playing things to the camera. Uh-huh. And it was like they, they had their bada bing, bada bam, you know, sort of back mm-hmm. and forth very good. But it was like just two wisecracking guys. And you know? are they pronouncing it Godot or Godot? Oh, no, they said Godot. Yeah. 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 The, uh, like, uh, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently the more kind of accepted pronunciation in English or, you know, in England and around these parts is Godot. Mm. And in America, they say Godot. There's a big God. argument as to which way it is. And apparently in French, I looked it up apparently in French because of course it was written in French and Beckett apparently never confirmed. Beckett never confirmed uh-huh. which way you're meant to say it. Um, but in French, it should just literally be Godot. So g- it, it shouldn't have an emphasis on either syllable. For the guy who wrote it, it sounds like he confirmed fucking nothing yeah. about it. But because that was seen... the point, I think. I think he wanted you to interpret it the way in which you interpret it. I and hate yeah, artists. I hate that. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's the whole like point. It sounds like yeah. you have... It wasn't grown on a tree. It's been created and birthed by you. Mm. What you think... Is what it is, but the ambiguity—the right. ambiguity is there purposefully. For yeah. me, I think if you hear the word Godot and you hear the word Godot, you, obviously if you hear Godot, you, you're conjuring up an image of God. If you see it written down, though, if you're reading this play, like there's no way that you're not going to have God spring out from the page. Yeah. And yet his response to that is like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, he's no, saying it isn't God. necessarily that Godot is God. But, but if you watch it and you've got obviously a lot of like 
religion and background in Christianity, you, you may well, as a viewer, put that onto it. Right. But Beckett very much said it's not necessarily about that. It's up to you. But with regards to the writer having an influence and or being able to tell the actors and things about it, especially if the if the writer's going to be there when they're rehearsing it or whatever. Most writer-directors, if an actor asks them something, they will give them a very specific answer. It's you know, Sometimes you want the actor to bring their own interpretation of it, and there's a freedom that you want to give an actor. But also, if they ask you a question, or you know, then you usually give them a yes or no answer. I thought I would do it this way. What do you think? Yes or no? Mm. And so I read about one actor in one of the performances. He inferred that his character, because of the way they spoke, probably had Parkinson's disease. And oh no, sorry, he didn't infer it. He asked, uh, he asked his doctor, what would make a person speak like this? I'm doing this role in this play, but they gradually speak in a certain way. What would make someone do that? And the doctor said they probably have Parkinson's disease. So oh. the actor said to Beckett, oh, I assumed, or I'm playing it as though the, the uh, character has Parkinson's. And Samuel Beckett, who just replied, yes, of course. Like, well, do you want me to do that or not? Okay, come on, give me some direction sure. here. Because I thought it was dementia. I'd right, heard okay. that, that, I mean, I, I, I don't know that it might be a different thing that I'd read. But yeah, the idea of not remembering. There's and, certainly and, some clues to that, yeah. And, and there's like stuttering, isn't there? And like hesitation. Obviously, there's a lot about the pauses and how important it all is in Godot. But yeah, the fact that they're so forgetful and they can't remember what's happened and the confusion that comes yeah. up from it. And it's very much dumb and dumber, isn't it? Because there's one that's mm. more forgetful, but then the one that's reminding him everything stops yeah. forgetting yeah. and questioning stuff. There's a really good video on YouTube called The History of Beckett that has a bunch of of audio recordings, interviews of the original actors who got the play the mm -hmm. first time. I tell you what, it's very gratifying to hear uh, a very well-spoken, intelligent actor talking about receiving this play the first time. And then oh, I thought it was a load of nonsense. So I didn't understand a word of it. <laughs> you saying like, oh, oh, okay, good. It didn't make you feel so stupid when you first come and read it because it is fucking hard work. It is yeah. very hard work now, to penetrate through, isn't it? Beckett didn't direct the first one. He has directed right. performances of it. Now, the story goes in this uh, video that he handed the script over to the director and the actor and said, okay, make out what you want of it well you know it's whatever you think yeah. and then went and watched the performance and I'm like oh no 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 this is wrong this is wrong so what the fuck were you <laughs> right you yeah your time to tell you this was at the beginning that's why you give specific direction <laughs> yeah. yeah maybe he was curious to see how it would be interpreted though and Wanted then that first and then like right yeah. and we come back to it so he's I... such an interesting character back i have to confess before doing this i hadn't watched Godot mm. and i've never seen endgame or any of the other plays or read his novels and i'd quite like to know like, i think mm. it would be really fascinating to try and delve further into it the only thing I'd ever read of Beckett's was Waiting for Godot. And I, I remember it, I read it at university. It did actually have quite a sort of profound effect on me in that me and some other students at university, we started a, a little production company group to try and rival the main university's players. Mm. And we all, each of us decided we would all direct something that year. And so my friend said to me, look, you're going to direct a play. You need to find something that you're really going to, you're happy to sort of be, you know, living and breathing mm -hmm. and you can learn backwards and that will amuse you and you'll love because you, you need to know it. So, you know, you need to be passionate about it. And he gave me his copy of Waiting for Godot. And I'd heard of it before, but I'd never read it. Was it a well-worn copy? Was, it was quite well-worn. Mm -hmm. I remember it. It was a white, a white background with green and yellow squares on it. He'd made quite a few notes in it. He was a drama student. And he said, have a read of this. You might really enjoy it. And I read it and I remember... I was really excited at university because this is the kind of thing I'd gone there for. Like I was studying English literature, but I wanted to do dramatic stuff and mm. film things and that kind of thing. 
and I read and I started reading it and I was like really excited and I, I remember thinking this is absolutely the most biggest load of gibberish pretentious toss i've ever read this is not funny i don't understand it i'm yeah. not gonna i'm not gonna direct this and i went down to waterstones and i spent about an hour thumbing through uh, plays and i found the real inspector hound by tom stoppard which makes you laugh even when you read it on the page <laughs> and directed that instead but and I, and I st- when it's performed though it is funny, isn't it? Like there is are it? moments of it. It can be. Can I? All right. There are moments of humour in in Godot, most definitely. I'm gonna say I think right, and you you can both tear this apart if you want. I think Waiting for Godot is the theatrical equivalent of the Emperor's New Clothes. Okay, actors want to have it on their CV so they can say they've done it. Sure. Critics want to be able to write about it so they can seem highbrow, and audiences want to be able to pretend they understood it okay no one knows what it's really about because because it's it's all about what the actors interpret of it Mm. so you know so for example when you do get two aged irish actors with gravitas you see one thing but if you see two wisecracking american Mm. comics who should be kind of like doing mother-in-law jokes then you see another thing yeah, because yes. Steve Martin and Robin Williams did it, didn't they, in Broadway? And apparently, that would have yes, been a completely one different I show. Would have loved to have seen. That yeah, sounds good. But apparently, it was a bit of a bit of a like Robin Williams just started going off on his own tangent <laughs> yeah. and didn't perform yeah. Godot. Yeah. That would have been a bit weird, but so great to see. I mean, I love Steve Martin, and obviously Robin Williams, God rest his soul, was such an amazing performer. It would have been yeah. incredible. But I'd still choose Rick and Aid <laughs> if I yeah. could see anyone perform it because I feel Rick and Aid would have drawn the comedy out of this. Oh, it's and. Why? You see, you, we've yeah. all seen the rehearsal footage yes yeah. on youtube on there's YouTube. a yeah. five minute video or yeah. it's, a, it's a news segment that has a tiny tiny bit of rehearsal footage mm. and an interview of rick and aid that's right going on uh, about comedic double acts and mm. the play in general and you see little bits yeah. if and, anyone hasn't watched it uh, please yeah. go and watch it because it's great little tip but i think it was only uploaded a few years ago uh, but obviously maybe. it was recorded off the telly at the time thank mm. you to whoever uploaded it and recorded that it's great because one thing I have found with when I've been researching around Waiting for Godot is that every every clip that you do get to see of it is them having that back and forth of the moron and then it culminates yeah. in critic. Yeah. And that is the funny bit, That's a good isn't it? joke on the it's face a of it. Funny, it? You know, for in the theatre, on the night, all that, you know, the critics in there, aren't they? And, and the way Rick plays it is great and the way Steve Martin and Robin Williams play it is pretty Is pretty there good. anything like, of Steve Martin and Robin Williams on... A tiny I... bit that's really badly, bad quality recording right. so you can't really hear very well what they're what they're saying back and forth and it's yeah. terrible but I, you know it, it gives you a bit of a flavor as to how that it was staged there was a phrase that came up in this history of Godot that really resonated with me that there are certain part there are star parts and there are character parts you know you've heard of character actors and stuff mm. and basically what this means is there are parts that are very much every single thing about the character is all written and then there are ones that are a little bit blank and mm. it's made for the star fill in the all the blanks and have bits of their personality bleed through and that's what the two characters waiting for godot are meant to be right. you're meant to bring in some yeah. people who fill in all these nuances and weird stuff and mm. rick and aids it, it looks like they're the costume design on that looks great they look brilliant as dirty tramps but they both look cool for want of a better word yeah. Mm. and yeah if you just compare it to any other performance and the little bits you're seeing you can see the the humour they're mm. injecting. It is a really nice bit when they're talking about the smell of each other. Mm-hmm. Like I've got bad breath. Yeah. Yeah, and he sounds very much like Eddie. My disgusting breath. And then Rick's doing like 
all this noise, which isn't in the script. And he's using his hands a lot, yes. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And you can just certainly see that. And then Aid raises his foot and says, I've got stinky feet. Yes. And, then, and then Rick sort of does a thing of like merging the breath smell and the feet smell Together. into one. Yes. And sort and of that's, with a... yeah. yeah, that's not in the script. Yeah. That's yeah. something that you, you can tell that they and the director put in. Mm. And yeah, fuck me. I just, that's when I kind of got it. We're first seeing their sketch. I'm like, oh, okay. Mm. But I bet that'd be really funny. And it's how it's performed, isn't it? And yeah. uh, Les, uh, Les Blair, the director, is, he's got a little soundbite on that. And I'd love to get, I'd love to get him on, on yeah. and interview him. Because he says that they, inter- they decided to sit down with it as if it was fresh and they'd interpret it the way they wanted to. And that is what, I know what you're saying, Paul, about it being just one of these plays it's a bit sort of everyone has to say they really enjoy it and you come out of it thinking what the fuck was that about yeah. you know secretly even though you've got to pretend like you thought it was the best thing you've ever seen and there is a bit of that when I was watching all the way through act one I was a bit like bloody hell this is hard work and then once I got to the end of act two I was like oh okay it started falling into place and there are some really amazing speeches within it aren't there There's like pop's own speech in act two though is just incredible theatre like I'm I'm I never spoilers no no well I mean you know (laughs) it's about life and death isn't it and all of the drudgery of human existence and it it's it is I mean I wouldn't say it you know I'm like oh it's changed my life watching it or anything but I do want to I'd love to see a performance of it now it hasn't been performed in the West End since 2009 with Patrick Patrick Stewart and Ian Ian Ian, um, McKellen and have you watched Ian McKellen talking about it no I saw that video on YouTube but I didn't watch it it's 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 interesting he's obviously saying a little bit the same like you know every drama student has to watch it and you know we all have to take away what we take from it but um this is my process (laughs) yeah what i do is i pretend um no he isn't saying that (laughs) i pretend to be vladimir he is talking about beckett's inspiration around writing the play because of course you've got to know from where Beckett was coming when he sat and wrote wrote this play, isn't it? He was writing it in the 40s. He'd lived through the war, the Second World War. He'd fled the Gestapo. You know, when you add all those layers onto what happened with that, that's where the theatre of absurd was born out of. So, it does give it a gravitas that I don't think you can dismiss. So it was written pre-nuclear fears or anything, pre-nuclear bombs and that kind of thing? Well, it's written in the height of it, really, because... The Second World War finished, of course, in 1945, and he was writing this between 49 and 53. Right. So the Cold War because I was, was watching it was literally bubbling away. Yeah. Like, like I know when you watch it, you know you're sort of wondering what's you know what is the meaning because everyone wants to be able to find the one defined mean, defining meaning behind it. And I was looking at it, thinking, okay, are they in purgatory? Maybe are they immortal and everyone else on Earth is dead? Are they? Has there been a nuclear war? And actually, they're only the last yeah, two people to be alive. That was my first thought. That one's sort of a Mad Max type. Yeah, world. it's They're desolate. Like, lucky going around, uh, being dra- sort of dragging along Pozzo um, as a kind of weird carriage slave combo type thing, like he's being led along in a really weird. There's something very Python about that. Obviously, Python came after, but like you know, the image of the rope around the neck. Yeah, and it everything. makes me think of King Arthur walking uh, without the horses and doing the, the camels and stuff. <laughs> the way he's shuffling. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, you know, that's maybe just in that performance. So the character of Lucky is entirely mute until he speaks and does a five-minute monologue. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, and he's told Think Pig, right? Something like that. Yeah. It's around that that time and he it's at the end of act one when he goes onto this this mm. huge thing and it's one of the parts that a lot of people bring out was that christopher ryan yeah, playing christopher that? ryan's part right. yes now from seeing the rehearsal footage it looks like they uh rick and aid were attacking him and trying to stop mm. him from talking the whole 
way through him doing that speech, like getting him into a like, headlock and he, he's still talking. That seems so them. Yeah. You know, that, adding yeah. that much mm. physical humour mm. and visual gags. Yeah. Oh. So in terms of, like, Waiting for Godot, influencing Bottom or Richie and Eddie and so forth, we should probably make clear that people often say, oh, Rick and Abe were in Waiting for Godot in 91. That's where Bottom came from. That was the genesis of it. And it wasn't that. correct. No. Yeah. So we know that the chance, or we think they, they did it at university when they were in the, there in the 70s as 20th Century Coyote. And then, yes, they were doing Waiting for Godot in 91. But by this point, they had already recorded mm. Bottom and it was, yeah, Bottom it was, was about to be Bottom pilots. Was- just the pilot or no bottom was airing in nineteen ninety what we're doing the thirtieth anniversary series, right? Bottom was airing from September the seventeenth and Godot launched in September nineteen ninety one. It was the same time. Well I can tell you who can confirm this. Edmondson. Well we're still waiting for him to turn up, aren't we? He's calling soon, right? Hang on, let me just look at my phone. Oh sorry, it's on the airplane mode. My mistake. He's probably already calling. Yeah, so it's literally the same time. And also, I mean, Drop Dead Fred came out in theatres in October 1991. Right. <laughs> so that was a big year for Rick. It's a huge year for Rick, isn't it? But So therefore, we, can, we can say that whilst the their performances in it, they may have drawn things from Waiting for Godot, it, both in their previous performances in the 70s and from this run, but Waiting for Godot is not what Bottom came from, is no. it? It no. came from Gordon Simpson and Steptoe and Son. Yeah, they ripped that, they ripped that off instead. I think the undeniable truth here is that Godot is about two characters who are literally floating in existence, aren't they? We don't know where they are. You know, that's the yeah. whole point. We don't know where they're meant to be. And yeah. they begin or... and end each act in the exact same place and they're never going to leave. And that is what every great sitcom has running through the heart mm-hmm. of it. Two characters that can't leave each other relying entirely on each other might have a love-hate relationship but they have to start and end at the status quo yeah because he's just he invented the situational comedy it's that relationship in drama isn't it and you know what works and and, you know two halves of a whole is what people talk about a lot about Estragon and Vladimir that's what Aid said in the interview yeah and I've sum it up very well I've heard some people interpret it that Vladimir's the mind he's got the hat on he's got whatever and then the boots and they're talking about it is Estragon being the body and he's talking about how ailing and in pain he is and it's interesting that idea of the two halves of the whole of the human condition in terms of the two characters in it i did think there were one or two aspects of their characters that seem to be similar Mm. to the roles that rick and a play as richie and eddie in that i'll just read you this tiny little bit from wikipedia Mm. it's about vladimir and estragon and the way to remember which one is probably uh, who here is e for estragon e for eddie v for vladimir and v for richie the v sign (laughs) right okay so Vladimir stands through most of the play, whereas Estragon sits down numerous times and even dozes off. Estragon is inert and Vladimir restless. Vladimir looks at the sky and muses on religious or philosophical matters. Estragon belongs to the stone, preoccupied with mundane things such as what he can get to eat and how to ease his physical aches and pains. He is direct, intuitive. He finds it hard to remember, but can recall certain things when prompted. Mm. That does. Richie's very sort of wave at planes, you know, look out the window, isn't everything great? 
and Eddie's very much closed the curtains and trying to watch yeah. the video. A hundred percent. So in that way, yeah, sure, there are influences there on bottom from it, but it, it isn't like, oh, well, that's just definitely that Richie and Eddie are these two characters. It's not that, it's not oh, that course. obvious, but yeah, there are elements of it, aren't there? For anybody to say, so therefore, Waiting for Godot is what made bottom, like, it's not true, is it? But then there's, Septo and Son is quite similar, to be honest, you know, I that idea. So he did, influenced, and yeah. so there's... Wait for Godot in Steptoe and Son, mm. for sure. Yeah, there's yeah. that yin and yang, isn't there, of like two characters that need each other. And like you say, there's one that's full of energy and wants to get out and be better and do things. Yeah. And then there's one that's pulling the other back. And there's some heartbreaking lines of dialogue in Godot, isn't there? It's like, would we, I'm not going to quote it verbatim because I don't know it, but you know, it's like, would we be better off parting? And they essentially say, we've had 50 years already together. What's the point? Yeah. Don't they? And it's that idea of we can't part now. What yeah. would be the point? We've the, been together this long. To sound wanky for a second, the thematic similarities seem to be two guys who don't really have much to do, but just sort of looking away to fill the time, not really doing anything, yeah. waiting for something to happen in their lives and who kind of don't, particularly like each other but don't have anyone else mm. so you know they just exist with each other yeah. that's not only is that bottom that is so many yeah. things now uh, got a little bit of uh, bad news i got in touch with the agent he's, he's messaging me on whatsapp and i'm afraid adrian can't make it today but he will make it tomorrow oh, okay so i think maybe we just take a break now um and then we will resume filming tomorrow um it's just it's just come back yes sir with all the questions no sir yes sir uh, back and forth he'll, but he'll definitely be here tomorrow okay so so, so yeah, should we have a get, quick word from our sponsor we'll and, then come back? Sponsor and then we'll come back we'll be filming it the next day but you know we'll just come back in two minutes do you feel despair about the existential nature of life and the meaningless of existence well fear not there's a book about bottom coming out that's gonna really pass the time the time would have passed anyway but not as rapidly if you buy this and read this when's it coming out don't know oh welcome back it's a fresh new day where things are gonna be different edmondson will be here today He's assured us, so let's go on with the second half of the podcast. Everyone all right today? Yeah, good. It feels like it's been a while because there's some leaves on the tree now. Mm. What tree are we talking about? There are four or five leaves on that tree right behind us that you're going to hang yourself from later. Oh, there's some nice lines in Godot about <laughs> the tree with um, hanging themselves. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's so bottom. It's very much, it's like, oh, we can hang ourselves and then we'll get an erection. <laughs> oh, an erection. And that. So, yes, and everything that follows it. So, like, would you what? Someone's going to come and fuck you because you've hung yourself. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's part of the nonsensical thing, isn't it? But is that is that a thing that was a myth that was in common like understanding then that if you got if you were hung you'd get an erection? Is that well, the blood going like? Yeah, is it a myth or is it true? I don't. Well, I've never been. I've death. never been in the presence of anyone who has been hanged. The death stalk. I've heard that. Myth. I don't. Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard, heard it. it. And you but... shit yourself as well. So. Oh wow. Yeah, it's, it's you know like the fight and flight thing. Your body, much like when you shoot yourself in fear. I, right. I suppose it probably is fear. At least you're making your your body is thinking, "Oh God, make myself lighter so I can get away." I think it is actually once they're dead, though, isn't it? That you would then all, all the muscles out. relax and well, yeah, it's horrible. And the fingers and hair grow. No, they don't. The body shrinks. That's a, <laughs> that's a um, common. Mm, a myth. But yeah. 
to bring it back to a previous one that we did, base needs is something that is definitely touched upon, isn't it, in Godot, in the mm. same way mm-hmm. that, you know, obviously we're looking for comparisons with Richie and Eddie. Like, you know, I think, is it Vladimir goes off to have a wee a like few times? the edge of the world, sort of, it looks like in the uh, version mm. um, that's on YouTube. It's quite surreal. It makes me think yeah. of Tyrion pissing off the edge <laughs> of the wall in, yeah. in um, Game of Thrones. Let's talk about some of the things in Waiting for Godot that are very bottom. Mm. Now, they discuss about having a bit of a fight and a bit of an insult thing just to pass the time. That's yeah, very, very, very bottom. Yeah, yeah. It's not a particularly violent show, play, or at least it's not in the writing stuff. It can be interpreted. There is a bit where Lucky kicks Estragon in the shin mm. in the film. Um, I don't know if he's, if he's written as if he kicks him in the shin. He hit, hurt, certainly hits him and then yeah. he gets some sort of attack back and forth. So mm. There's certainly little bits of violence and I'm sure the Rick and Aid version, they'd have really played into that side yeah. of things. Mm. Why isn't it on fucking yeah. video? I want it so much. <laughs> I thought there were elements of the sort of confused bickering that you see between Rich and Eddie that I was seeing in Waiting for Godot where one of them would sort of say something and then one other one wouldn't really get it, but it would provoke or prolong an argument between the two of them, you know? But yeah. why? Why? All this stuff. Like, well, why do you yeah. mean this? Because this is the way it is, and I'm telling you. Yeah. But why? There, there, were, there were certain lines that I thought that feels like that could have come out of bottom, and it might be partly from the way it was performed, but even things like, um, how's your foot? Reply, swelling visibly. That mm-hmm. felt like that could be, like, mm-hmm. how's he looking? Fatter, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that's where those moments of humour are coming out, and it. obviously it's not, like rip-roariously hilarious and you're rolling on the floor clutching your sides kind of humour yeah. but like it's absolutely there in the double act that comes out of Estragon and Vladimir's relationship and there's those moments where it's back to where it's like should we hug isn't there there's kind of like yeah. a the, there's like a love there between them but then they it doesn't happen yeah, and it's all it very like they're meant to hug so like, I guess society would sh- say we should hug now yeah. they don't really want to yeah and then it's like are you happy are we happy you know those kind of now things now we've been happy what do we do now yeah there was a bit of sort of prolonged insults that reminded me of the vagabond usurer. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Know? I was going to say that that speech where it leads up to critic. critic. That's the one. Absolutely is like a Richie. In it. Well, I mean, it's dickhead, isn't it, that they have in that, but there's a third party in that one. But yeah, like the, the insults thrown back and forth between Richie and Eddie. Uh, I mean, it, it's just a little, little gem within Waiting for Godot, isn't it? Yeah. But again, like it's that. It's a stand-up moment, I think. And that, yeah, I, I would like any critic in the audience being <laughs> on the fence then like oh, oh fuck them then <laughs> there are no stars I know interesting that- the critics for Rick and Aid weren't very very flattering no one at really all liked it, they? did they no. idiots you don't know what it's fucking about they're fucking like they all oh, where's the melancholy and the, the angst they're like but it's meant to be funny as well that it, is what's interesting very isn't it, it? that you, obviously the interpretation of the play and what you might go into it expecting and then what obviously Rick and Aid drew out of it was the comedic side. You know, obviously if you were going into it just wanting all the pain and the tears and not the laughter, they probably went in with the preconception as well of like, oh, these are these two TV comedians and they're going to butcher this wonderful, wonderful existential play, you know. And I, mm. I, I wish that I could have seen it because I reckon Rick and Aid would have treated it with the respect that it deserved. I don't think that they would have in any way made it like they don't care about the performances or anything. Just they would have brought the it to life. Moments in those words because there's some fucking gems in there that are, that can be just thrown away or put real good comedic emphasis yeah. on. And yeah. Can we talk quickly about all the characters very briefly? We probably should have gone about this yesterday, but all of the characters. There's Vladimir and Estragon, who are two tramps. 
but that is not in the script at all. It's never mentioned in the pages that they are two tramps. Yeah. And apparently, it was something that the director come up with. Is it right that it's sort of inferred that they are they look a bit sort of uh, down at heel, like their clothes are a bit shabby? The only thing that's specified is that they wear bowler hats. But There's since a bit when they're all changing hats and stuff that would mm. be in the script, I but guess. But there's talk of the boots being too tight, aren't there, on Estragon? Yeah, there's boots, but, um, but it's a, almost as if they're not his, though. You know, like as if he's acquired them, and then there's a moment where he swaps boots, right? Well, no, so they actually are his own boots, but he thinks they're someone else's boots, right? Okay. But in terms of the actual them dressing as tramps, I think the way that came about was a bit like in the same way that the first time someone performed Sherlock Holmes to a mass audience, they dressed in a certain way. When they put first put Waiting for Godot on, they dressed them as tramps, and then people saw that and they just thought, "That's what they look right, like." This is yeah. what they look like from Something now on. Something like that, yeah. Apparently, Beck. It uh, confirms as well. Oh, I didn't write him as tramps, but yes, they're tramps. Yeah. I don't know if he, maybe he had a conversation with a director, and it was mentioned, and then he forgot he told him that, and it just was always in the director's mm. mind. But that. it's that interpretation oh. of like, what else are they going to be if they've clearly got this rootless existence and they're yeah. just living they in live. the open? Yeah. They haven't. They don't appear to have a roof over their head. It makes know. sense, doesn't it? It certainly fits. You can see why it got it got taken out of the script. You know, it wasn't there in the script, but you can see why it was interpreted that way. Maybe Beckett had dementia. We've got. <laughs> Maybe uh, that's why he wrote this part of dog shit. We've got two other characters uh, that turn up called Pozzo, who is like a kind of tradesman, regal, posh, higher status type. Fat and his, bastard. And his servant, slave, called Lucky, who... Mm is mute for most of it, apart from his one long monologue. Um, and he is tethered to Pozzo yes. with a rope. If, if anyone hasn't watched it, you know, he's tethered by his neck by a very long rope. Pozzo's they they like, wanted a noose him. earlier as well, so that coming up, like, oh, maybe we can get that. They fight mm. over some chicken bones. It's quite odd and surreal. And there's also a little boy that turns up at the end of both acts, with mostly just saying yes sir, no sir, yes sir. But with a message part. that Godot is on, Played on the way. Played by, in the Rick and Age show, Dean Gaffney. Mm. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Would have been great. How old would he have been then? In well, he had to be I've... like eight or nine maybe, yeah. maybe a little bit older, but looking that sort of age. Yeah. He'd have been before EastEnders. I think oh he, yeah, definitely. I, I think he's 42 now. And so this was in what, 91? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he would have been like 13. Okay. There you go. There you are. So while you figure things out, maths. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Hopefully we might be able to get Dean on the podcast to talk about his memories of working with Rick and Aidan, because that would be, imagine that, at 13, fantastic part. But to, yeah, to he doesn't them. know of them for anything other than young ones, and maybe he wouldn't even have watched it at that sort yeah, of age. Yeah, because Bottom was only just airing, you know, mm, yeah. so really, really, yeah, I'd love to chat to him about what he remembers from Rick and A's performances as well. But yeah, Pozzo, I've read, obviously, I mean, when I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, okay, so he's capitalism, and he, but he's, he's also fascism, he represents communism, he represents all of the horrible kind of, like, structures in the mm. human existence that keep us in our little boxes, doesn't he? Um, Does he? I don't know. Does he? That is what a lot of people have interpreted it okay. as, yeah. yeah. I mean, I watched it thinking that, oh, he's capitalism. And then when I did a little bit of background reading, I was like, oh, okay, he's also a lot of horrible, shitty things that keep he's, the human... He's capitalism and, and fascism and yeah, communism. That's what a lot of people put onto it. It's, it's open to interpretation, okay, isn't fine. it? But he's the idea of who he is in the play, you know, yeah. he represents. And then Lucky is obviously representing the slave no. and the servant and the, and the working man. Now, to get Ponzi about it as mm. well, he's the only character who ages, changes in a certain way, because when you see him the second time, 
his status has fallen mm. and he's now blind and subservient for mm. Lucky to get him around. So, which shows that time mm. is passing and there is a deadline, yeah. things are declining, so that it won't actually keep going on forever and ever mm. and ever. Which you also see with the growing of leaves on the tree as well. So you mm. know yeah. that time is passing. It's yeah. not just like... They're, they're not fro- in limbo. They're, not in, a fr- they're yeah. not in the phantom zone like General Zod. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but if, so from what I took from it obviously it's all open to interpretation i would say that the blinding of pozzo is meant to be post-war so when beckett was writing this obviously he'd lived through the second world war and the idea being that it's almost like pre and post second world war is what i would say between the two acts i mean i don't know if i'm right but the idea of leaves growing on the tree it's hope Mm -hmm. you know all that kind of thing is what i would interpret from what's happened between act one and act two the fact that Vladimir and Estragon aren't sure what's happened. It is, seems to be the day and after. They but don't yet know how much time, time has gone yeah. by. It makes me think that they're two people that have essentially died in the war. It's certainly something. You know, you could you could interpret that, it that yes. way. And they're stuck in a nether region between death and life, and they're waiting for. And, and I think what I think they are waiting for is death. I think Godo is is it could be God, but I think it's death that they're waiting for. God and that's all that's going to give meaning to their life. So, do you, yeah. He's got a white beard. So, that's a fucking God reference for sure. Do you think that they have died and are waiting to ascend to somewhere like heaven or hell? Or are they on the ground in their last death throes, taking their last breath? This is what's interesting is that you can interpret it whatever way you want. I would say that they're If only they're Beckett stuck. had told us. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I would say they represent lost souls. Right. Um, and whether that's purgatory, if you've got that religious background. Our you know. souls. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like, I I don't think it's a load of shit. I think it's a really, really interesting play. I think play. it presents it's itself... definitely going to invite a lot too. of hyperbolic philosophical talk and all of that. But that is what drama should, I, should do in many ways. You're I, meant to go in and come out thinking about what you've just seen. I would like to quote the critic Vivian Mercier, who described mm. Waiting for Godot as a play which has achieved a theoretical impossibility, a play in which nothing happens yet keeps audiences glued to their seats. What's more, since the second act is a subtly different reprise of the first, he has written a play in which nothing happens twice. Was Vivian literally glued to their fucking seat? Is that what happened? Did someone put fucking glue on your seat, Vivian? Yeah, Vivian. Yeah, Vivian! (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, does he mean glued to his seat? Does he mean on the edge of their seat? Or does he mean, like, glued to your... You can't leave. You can't get up and leave. leave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bit like the expression, like you'll be glued to your seat, but you'll only need the edge of it. Because <laughs> you, you're usually glued to your screen, aren't you? Not your seat. Like, it's that's all the... kind of different. No, no, things. glued to your seat is a thing. It's I mean, I mean, I mean, pre-screens, people would would sit and on glued, seats in theatres. You wouldn't and, say glued yeah. to the stage, would yeah. you? That doesn't. That sounds like you've. But it's the inference glued to your seat that you're really enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. Right. that you've not okay. left. Right, because, I mean, I've only heard of it for glued to the screen. Okay. When you're really enjoying it. Same thing. But glued to your seat feels a bit more kind of like... Like you're being forced to watch it. Yeah, I don't know. And then you're on the edge of your seat means that you're really enjoying it. You know, you're like, you're captivated with what you're watching. Anyway, I digress. But yeah, I mean, that, what you obviously aren't happy with... Look, I... (laughs) With the idea that... I like... There were bits of it. So I, I enjoyed things like the absurdist stupidity that I saw bits of that that I saw in Rich in Richie and Eddie. So for example, the whole oh, someone swapped these boots over, my boots were too tight, oh these ones are too tight. Oh, that felt a bit like Eddie being like, look, I've got a duck. What use is a duck? Well yeah. it floats in the bath. There you know, mm. that those bits feel nice. It's a lot of kind of like, hey, aren't we clever and wanky? We're just gonna sort of I stand can, around. That's and- how I felt when I first came across this for sure. Yeah, it's certainly 
can give you a knee-jerk reaction of like, why is there no fucking arc here? Why is there no plot? You're just kind of ex- like taught to expect an ending, uh, the way mm. things build, and it just doesn't. And but it's kind of that's the, part of the point of it, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's It'd all be- middle. It's a kind of like the anti-jokes, anti-humour, those sort of things. It's surreal, you know. Yeah, the theatre of the absurd is basically what Beckett was part of. He invented, and nothing happens, but that is actually the point. Creating action life. out of inaction. Life doesn't really have oh. a huge arc, but and you are doing a story. You're not doing a documentary on just... But is theatre there to make you think? Is it there to make you come away thinking about what you've just seen? I would say yeah. Sometimes. And yeah, I would come away from this thinking I've wasted so much money on the tickets to this. Would you? Like genuinely? No. It depends who's in it. The play has so many different ways of doing it. I can see a very joyless, very serious version of this that would be fucking tortured that I'd only watch if I was glued to my seat. But yeah, just the the snippet that we see of Rick and A doing it, you can see like, oh, all right, they've managed to make this thing that could be very much hard work, fucking funny. Mm. Yeah, I would lo- who would you love to see in it? I would love to see Steve Pemberton and Rishi Smith in this. Oh yeah. yeah, I would. I mean, did you see them in art? I when did. The see them in art. Did yeah. art. Oh, fantastic! Best best night at the theatre I've yeah. ever had. Uh, I'd love. And- to, I'd love to see a production with Jim Davidson and Lee Hurst. <laughs> Would you? Because they say there isn't enough right-wing comedy anymore. <laughs> you can't say anything anymore. I'd also love to see, I think, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon would do it justice as well. That's a very good pairing, yeah. actually. Yeah. I've been sat there thinking about it. I mean, other than Rick and Aid, obviously, we could go back in time. Like, you, who would be a great pairing? Do you think Mitchell and Webb would do a good Yeah. Yeah. I would and love to see that. What about if you could see two women playing the role? Like French and Saunders, for example. Yeah, sure. There that could work. There's been an all-female production, hasn't there? And it was a very controversial thing at the time I was reading. That, you know, people said, you can't do that. Yeah, Why? at the time. it was Because, obviously, you know, the characters are male. They're, yeah. they're not female. They don't, they, I mean, that's, I guess can't hang yourself why you'll get a wet fanny <laughs> what are you gonna say? yeah that bit i suppose or are they playing men uh, well like, I'm, I'm not sure but i pre- presume it was women playing women but i, I didn't see mm. that production but yeah it would be interesting to see a double act i mean i mean it's difficult isn't it to just conjure that up and think oh they do a fantastic job but uh, yeah francis saunders might be really really great i think that's the, it's like who do you think is going to win the chat the the football the big football game man united <laughs> yeah I can, I can tell i'm a big football fan <laughs> but yeah the jennifer saunders and front door french 100 percent, 100 percent. i mean a really good one so who would be potso and lucky though or kathy burke could be one of them yeah she's always quite good kathy burke and Helen lederer there you go So to link Waiting for Godot to bottom a bit, thinking about the costumes that they wear, I know we've said that they look sort of threadbare and worn, but they're not tramps. Do you think that Spud Gun and Hedgehog are uh, the characters (laughs) from Waiting for Godot? Because Richie and Eddie, as we discussed before when we talk about the costumes... I certainly think there's something to that. Mm. Richie and Eddie, as we've discussed before when we talk about the costumes, are quite smart and well turned out. But Spud Gun and Hedgehog have the look of people who maybe were dressed smart ten years ago, but they haven't changed their clothes since. They don't own any other clothing. Spud Gun was ever smart. Right, well, working, I, but Christopher Ryan's Hedgehog, yeah. yes, and of course he played Lucky as well. Yeah, yeah. but I at least that their clothes were new when they had them. Mm. Like Even every single like, clothes in the world. <laughs> the, the point being that that's the only and outfit that, is, that they've right. owned and sure. could afford in the last you know ten twenty years. Because as you say, Spudgun isn't dressed smartly, is he? But he, uh, when he had that new, it would have been new, and he's uh, just lived in it. A Spudgun and Hedgehog spending their days in their house on Chief Mangasuta Buddha Lazy Codisac, waiting for Eddie. Yeah, they don't live together though, don't do they? they? Well, oh. one's married with kids. 
Yeah, and I'm... the other one you see on his own when he goes around from the trick or treating. But I, you would assume they live together until those details are. Even though, out. even though Spugun answers the door on his own, for some reason I just assume Dave Hedgehog lives around upstairs. Yeah, no, I've thought he lives that. with his mum, right? Spugun, and then Hedgehog's yeah, got the wife he can yeah. never remember the name of. Right, so I want to go through specific moments that are in Waiting for Godot and specific moments that are in mm-hmm. Bottom and how they could be in either version of it themselves, if you get what I mean. Yep. There's quite a few times in Waiting for Godot where they haggle over small bits of money. Like, so I help, help, how much? A pound? No. <laughs> oh, two quid? Mm, all right. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing, 20p, all yeah, this yeah. sort of stuff. That's yeah. I, I don't know where that originated from but it's something that really shows the character doesn't it shows Mm. how desperate they are it shows how poor they are it also shows how petty they are Mm -hmm. like a small amount of money really means a lot to them but also they will argue the toss for it they will argue the toss over it for eternity yeah that's a real loaded bit of dialogue isn't it so much backstory from that there's a bit that's very very Upbrow and high society, where right at the end of Waiting for Godot, one of the characters' pants have fallen down. Yes. He's <laughs> like, pull your pants up. Yeah. yeah. Fucking hell, come on. He takes the rope <laughs> off in order to try and see if it's strong enough to hang themselves. Well, his belt, you mean? Yeah. But it's a bit of rope, isn't it? And it breaks in half. Yeah, okay. I think but it's not fully, I suppose it could be leather or rope but yeah I think because they're tramps it's essentially just a bit of yeah right, fair enough but yeah his trousers falling down are a little bit of slapstick there for us isn't it waiting for someone to show up or something to happen and passing the time yeah Mm -hmm. now how many times does that happen in bottom I mean a lot of their days a lot of their stories are just them sitting around waiting then something turns up and they sort of embark upon it but yeah. they, they don't really have any aim or direction in their lives do they? they they wait for things to happen and then things do happen so yeah there's a very yeah. th- there's a similarity there I don't yeah. know that's quite a broad uh, term and I may be grasping at straws here to bring that into waiting for Godot you know, yeah, that's I what mean, this episode's about yeah it's possible I mean like we're avoiding saying things like you know what there's two white males yeah. you know and that kind of they thing they both have legs yeah. apart from the bit when he <laughs> gets absolutely. his absolutely like the idea that you've got a rootless existence and you're just mm-hmm. waiting for something to happen is definitely a parallel in bottom like you know things happen to Richie and Eddie they don't really make it happen for themselves like, it's what happens to them isn't yeah. it yeah they're not very driven yeah. they're very opportunist um, so I've written down some moments here we can bring them up in accident with the birthday party went for the birthday party there's something maybe a little bit there I mean, it kind of comes in later but that is the introduction of spud gun and hedgehog which does kind of feel like it's the first time we've seen two others when it's like it's mm. been in a two-hand and then suddenly oh there's these other two who are very weird well also actually you're right there in the richie who convinces himself of things in his head is waiting for a party of 4,000 people to turn up <laughs> yeah. and genuinely expects it and then is surprised when it doesn't happen. Yeah. That's the same sort of possible self-delusion that the characters in Waiting for Godot have. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I've just got another update from the agent here um, saying that um, he will get back to us but a little bit later. So sorry, sorry to interrupt there. Carry on. Okay, we'll just wait. It's fine. Yes. Other things I've written down uh, in culture, like the whole episode really is them passing the time. Mm-hmm. Right, what to do mm. yeah it's the boredom isn't it yes. how you fill that time the beginning of SUP yeah they're very much passing the time Absolutely. in a dreary existence it's a Sunday what do you do you know yeah. and, and again like you know Richie's thinking we should be out there yeah. playing cricket and he's full of the energy and like you said earlier Paul you know Eddie sat there on the couch saying close the curtains and trying mm. to watch the videos you know yeah. they're the one that I brought up all this Godot for Back in the day, uh, what, a couple of years ago now, Sout. I think like, the whole bloody episode. Mm. It's 
very like they're by a tree, they're outside, they're mm. waiting around, they're killing time. It's just you know, throughout the whole thing, like it's right all down. They're in an absolute fucking shithole. Mm-hmm. And hole, is... <laughs> hole yeah. is another one that's I... probably. Th- as much like it, maybe more so. It's just those two. I would say together. Hole is definitely, like, if you were going to have one particular episode that you compare. I mean, obviously the visuals in Salt mm-hmm. is there, but the idea that they've got nothing else to do and nothing else to occupy themselves with, they're trapped entirely. Like, that's Hole, isn't it? Like, the mm-hmm. top of the Ferris wheel is a bit of a weird <laughs> curveball, isn't it? But, um, you know, and they're, they're waiting to be rescued and no one ever will. Because, yeah. <laughs> in fact, they've been put up there on purpose, you know, because everyone thinks they're, well, Richie, certainly is a dickhead mm-hmm. um yeah it's a masterpiece and it's the yeah. other one waiting, for the, waiting holiday. for the holiday that i mean that's one that's very much locked in and uh, they're not waiting indefinitely they're waiting one evening and but the time is passing quite slowly for us <laughs> anyway so again you know grasping at straws yeah. well again it's cherry yeah. picking isn't it because you could say well you know it smells they actively buy the pheromone spray and they're going out to pull birds and you know, they're, they're not just waiting for things to happen but they in didn't that find the advert for like just falls in their lap isn't it so it's they are reactionary again they they've been really... out trying to shout out birds aren't, haven't they work. and yeah. they get home and they've been been you know they haven't had success so it's sure. how we're going to make it work and then same with digger actually i think with richie and eddie their purpose is trying to get their end away isn't it like that is what we've gone over mm. time and again whereas in waiting for godo there isn't really any mention of them ever having that apart from well let's hang ourselves and then at least we can <laughs> have an erection you know like that in that way it's not similar is it because they've Rick and Aid have yeah. obviously created all... more fleshed out characters than Estragon and Vladimir. I'll tell you where I think there is a big difference as well is that Richie and Eddie, it's in the writing, Richie and Eddie speak like people and the characters in Wait for Godot speak like a theatrical production mm-hmm. of something. So you know very, how like... Very uh, poetic and... Just, the, yeah. it's the way it's... So like uh, Steve Coogan uh, talked about this on stage once. He said, if you turn on like a radio play on the radio, you can tell in about two seconds w- that it's a radio play rather than normal people talking because mm-hmm. they don't talk like normal people. Okay. Rich and Eddie talk like you or I talk or how people in their homes talk. Whereas the people in this will say things like, we must celebrate this, but how? And that's not someone answering mm-hmm. someone. That's that's the same character. No one in real life goes, we must... Ce- we, you might say we must celebrate this, but no one would then go, but how? That's dramatic, dramatic writing. Dramatic pause mm-hmm. afterwards, yeah. But then again, we have said in the past that Rick and Aid wrote Bottom as if it was a play, and there are moments of poetry in some of you know. I mean, but the convincing thing is how they sell it. it does feel like Richie and Eddie are very, very real people, and they're delivering their lines almost effortlessly, and it's as if it's all coming out. And that's just because they're fantastic actors. Like, but you're absolutely right. The staging of Waiting for Godot is completely different to how Rick and Aid are playing Richie and Eddie. A I- show. You see that bit. Where it's like, you know, talking about the boots, mm. show, instead of show me, show. Right. Now that, what the fuck, why are you saying it that way? But yeah, seeing Richie, show, the mm. way he, he pronounced it stuff, it's, that's not funny on the page. And it's fucking funny. Again, mm. like, it's such a dramatically different part depending mm. on the actors and mm. again this is why i just it, to me it's like it suddenly made sense why people were going about this when i just saw mm. that little snippet if anyone has any leads on even an audio recording bootleg of this we'll send you a fiver yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll Can say we? no more well, about it. Uh... But you're right yeah the physicality of rick and Aid's performance like we've talked about it in our physical comedy episodes you know what you bring to a character in your physicality can say things that the audience weren't even aware that they're taking from you and you know, we've talked about it haven't we like in 
the physical comedy episode about how literally how you present yourself on stage can tell you about your character. And that is down to the actor's interpretation of it and the direction they get from the director. Mm. So yeah. if Samuel Beckett had been a bit clearer in his stage directions and also just when he told people and talked to them rather than just shrugging his shoulders and going, I don't know, who do you think I am, the writer? Oh, wait, well, I am the writer. There's some, that history of Beckett, like the one of the actors sits down with him afterwards and says, well, this is what I think of this because of that. There's a line here that means this. The religious element's very clear because of this, 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 and this. It's like, well, if that's what it meant to you, then that's what it meant to you. It's like, oh, fuck you. (laughs) 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 I mean, it absolutely is pretentious, isn't it? Like, you can't say anything other than that. Like, like, you interpret it the way you do, darling, and that's right, you know. Do you know what it's about, Beckett? Or are you just a fucking... Look, like, is this just a big fucking practical joke? Right? It's a Nick Block test. It's interesting, page. though, that apparently Beckett saw it as a millstone around his neck eventually, yeah. Godot, because people made such a huge deal of it and then anything he did afterwards was always... And anything anyone did afterwards sure. was well, compared to it. Like, we're to, all doing now, we've got him. All he had to do in the end to get rid of that millstone was go, look, okay, the Emperor is not wearing anything. Okay, I admit it. They're stark bollock fucking naked. <laughs> Two other small... Grasping the straws references that I've seen in bottom as well. Uh, the what, how small Richie's penis is, and no, that bit small grasping at straws. Sorry, I don't know the way you said that. Made me think of grasping a tiny little penis, little, <laughs> the little penis straws and hen nights. Carnival, the end. That's a year of them doing the video. Mm. Something that maybe seemed like time's passing, but the same things happening. Mm. And in bottom live two, the queen's coming round. Wait for the queen. Yeah. Oh yeah, queen. yeah. You're right. There's, they're always sort of. She's always on the cusp of appearing, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, sure. Any other things stood out for you two with bottom or Beckett? Only really the lines I mentioned earlier. You know, there's a few like bits where I thought, oh, that feels a bit could be Rich and Eddie. But I think it may have been partly down to the way they were performed. You know, half of it's down to the performance of the actors, which I think is. Why in this? I don't think many people would go and see this show if there was two unknowns in it. That's why. Um, yeah, star it, parts it, versus it, character parts. It requires mm-hmm. a Rick and Aid or a Ethan Hawke and a John Leguizamo or a Steve Martin and a Robin Williams. If it was just the local Andram Society was doing it, you'd go fuck that. It's boring as fuck and it doesn't make sense. So I at least want to see famous people doing it. It can be boring, sure, but so can anything. Yeah, and that, I mean, I haven't seen any versions with anyone unknown in it. Although the one I've watched on YouTube, I, I can't say I know those actors that were in it, play, you know, the Irish actors in it. So and... one of them I recognised from an episode of Game of Thrones. Right. He's a guy who gets... St- he's in one episode and he's mm-hmm. like found slumped on the ground. He's been you see what I mean? Like their, yeah. their characters isn't why I thought that the, the delivery of their lines was any good or any worse. Like, I, right, it would elevate it to see a personality in the role. For all the negativity I am throwing at it, I would still love to have seen the Rick and Aid performance mm-hmm. of it. And if anyone does have a tape of it, please let us know and we will pay you for it. Like, I'd still love to see it and mm-hmm. it might give me a new appreciation of the show. I think it definitely, definitely would. Right, what other things have you noticed that uh, Waiting for Godot has gone on? to inspire huge one for me absolute colossal huge one that i'm surprised no one's mentioned yet with now and i Mm. it's fucking everywhere in it it's about nothing happening very dreary scruffily well-dressed people danny coming round as well kind of reminds me of pop so in a weird sort of way i mean again grasping at the straws him taking off his glasses and he's got like bloodshot 
eyes is like he's blind. I mean, it might be a tiny, tiny little reference. To I mean, it. with with Nanalyze, my favourite film, so I slightly bristle at this because of how much of a disliking position I've taken against Waiting for Godot. I can see what you mean, though. I can see those mm. certain kind of similarities. Well, this is it. They're not tramps, are they? But they're literally like alcohol shoe yeah, back yeah, together yeah, and it, stuff. It's that thing of waiting for the pubs to open, all of that kind of thing. Like, yeah, there's definite parallels there. I mean, it's influenced a lot of things, like certainly episodes of things. There's a there's a Simpsons episode, isn't there? There's a really nice sketch in Sesame Street where there's um, theatre masterclass or something, uh, the Cookie Monsters narrating it like in an armchair theatre type way and then you'd see excerpts from the play waiting for Elmo. And is Elmo the character that lives in the dustbin? No, that's uh, Oscar the Grouch. Elmo oh. is the Tickle Me Elmo red happy, okay. loves everyone. But he's not in that because they're waiting for Elmo. What's... So it's... Uh, Grover and uh, I don't know what's the play that has people in dustbins oh that's um, Endgame Endgame or Agamemnon no it's Endgame Endgame. and it's led by Beckett as well I think it is he can fuck right (laughs) off can't he there's references to it in The Simpsons. I don't know if anyone's watched the final episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in series 14. That's called Waiting for Big Mo. Okay. And yeah. that's entirely taking place in a laser quest and they're yeah. Yeah. waiting for Big Mo to show uh, sure. up. Um, uh, Waiting for Guffman, the film by Christopher Guest about yeah. them putting on an Amdram performance and then waiting for a very high-end theatre reviewer called right. Guffman okay. to turn up. There's certainly... So basically, but waiting for waiting for the bus. Can you do that? I've got one. So in that highbrow film, Supergirl. Uh, that was made in the early 80s to try and capitalise on the success of Superman. Peter O'Toole is in it, and his character is in the Phantom Zone, and he's just sort of there in this wasteland um, on his own, and Supergirl goes and visits him. And just through the course of this conversation here, it made me think of that scene in Supergirl. So I think Supergirl was partly influenced by Waiting for Godot. About Mad Max, and just wandering around that wasteland sort of thing. Yeah, maybe, maybe. About the episode uh, Marooned, uh, Red Dwarf, when they're just waiting to be rescued and it's in a desperate... I mean, it's a two-hander, isn't it? And it, it, you know, I think it's a bit of a stretch to say it's waiting for Godot necessarily that has influenced that one. I think it's just them wanting to do Rimmer and Lister in a a room and they're trapped and they're waiting to be rescued. How did he smell the wood? But Marooned is absolutely one of the best episodes of Red Dwarf. How did he use the microphone as well? There's so many times when they fuck up and they like give them hard light form because we can bloody... Do this properly. <laughs> yeah. Finally, we don't have to get, do workarounds yeah. to have him touching things. Yeah. Yeah. And There's one you... more film uh, I want to mention that um, I came to uh, while I was in uni doing some film study and stuff, and it was brought up to me because of the comparisons to Wiffnell and I. It's a film called Adam and Paul. Okay, I've never heard of it. No, it's it's an Irish film. It's about two crackheads. Huh? No, no, not crackheads. Is it a comedy? Yeah, it is. Okay. It's about two heroin addicts that uh, wake up um, in the park, uh, having you know spent the night on a bender, and then searching the whole day for some heroin, trying to get fixed, and then going around uh, Dublin, I believe it is, is looking for for drugs. Did they overdose the night before and they're dead? Well, they no, because to spoil the ending, one of them overdoses at the end. Ah, okay. So no, okay, but. Um, yeah, there's a, if you don't I like if you like with now and I, I think you should check that out. Okay. It's an Irish film. There's not really any name actors in it that I'm aware of, but it's yeah, it's it's very melancholy and tragic. But it's, I, it's, it's a lot of I, I saw a, 
someone has written, oh, the comparisons of Waiting for Godot and Adam and Paul made me think, oh, fucking hell, of course, with now and I as well. I'll check it out. That's always a big claim that annoys me when I see it on film posters, things like the spiritual successor to with now and I. Oh. I think you're really yeah. fucking bigging yourself up there, so you need to be something special. Oh, there's but- an Edward Furlong drama uh, set in prison that says something about the best prison drama since Shawshank Redemption. Like, fuck off. Really? <laughs> what a bold <laughs> statement. It's set in a prison. There you go. Yeah. Speaking of which, apparently doing performances of Waiting for Godot has been done in quite a few prisons by prisoners, and that obviously just adds an extra kind of gravitas to the entire thing. Because the idea of being completely utterly trapped and you've got nowhere to go and completely aimless in life, of yeah. course, yeah. speaks to many people who were trapped in prison and in many ways I feel like you felt that way in the audience Paul when you're <laughs> watching God I know yeah and then, um, but then when a character glued came... to your seat don't fuck it I need to leave I can't stand another moment when a character came on with a noose already around their neck I was thinking you lucky lucky bastard <laughs> There's a fantastic Alexis Sale sketch from his mm. uh, from his sketch show uh, back in the eighties, nineties. Yeah, I've been waiting for you to bring show. this up because it's yeah. a, it's a, it's on YouTube. Yeah, uh, if anyone hasn't watched it, I'd recommend. The premise is he's rushing to get somewhere. He's in a car and he gets pulled over. But I'm like, where are you going to? In such a hurry. Who you know? Who are you? And I have details. Like, oh, sorry, uh, my name's Godo. I'm on the way to see some people. I'm running late. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, just see like, what Godot's actually up to. It's a lovely little flip, yeah. isn't it? And then he's he, it, weirdly, it's um, it's yeah. James Dreyfus, isn't it? Who's in the, the sketch on yeah. stage, like when he, and he turns up. I can't remember the name of the other actor. Let's not give away the actual. Ending I won't give sketch. the full ending, yeah. but yeah, it's a fun little sketch. Um, he, he, it ends with one of them overdosing. <laughs> I mean, it's inspired a lot of little things, hasn't it? I mean, that's the whole point of the theatre of the absurd is that it was a movement that kind of got born out of the post-war era. Everything's grim. Let's have a real discussion about the meaningless existence of life. Exactly, which I think if you've lived through the war... I mean, I studied history at uni, so I think the idea of where Beckett was getting that inspiration from, for me, makes me feel more interested in the in the narrative ian mckellen's interview he says that essentially beckett worked for the french resistance during the second world war oh was he trying Um, to bore the germans to death well he was apparently he said himself that he was a few nights or a few weeks was in charge of being at an outpost and all he was doing was waiting for a message okay and it the message was if it doesn't come today it will come tomorrow so wait wait you just got to wait there and so, therefore, of course, that would be one of the inspirations for, for Godot, you know, and the torture and the boredom of just waiting. Well, I'm sorry yeah. to change the subject, um, but I've just got a message from uh, Mr. Emerson's agent again. And I'm so sorry, but um, he's not available today, but he will be in touch tomorrow. OK, well, I'm, I'm going to try and get an erection. Yeah, I think we will either commit suicide or we'll finish this podcast rather than wait any longer. What do you reckon? My summation for Waiting for Godot would be this. If you want to watch it, if you can get hold of a copy of Rick and Aid performing it in 1991, watch that and also send us a copy. But if you can't, just pop with Nell and I on. It's a far superior film. Yeah, it's not. And just watch Bottom as well because it's <laughs> far superior and much funnier, I think. Um, yeah. I'm being told that Krusty Gets Cancelled is the episode in which the puppet Gabbo is coming. Oh, okay. right. It does turn up. And it's definitely well, there you there. go. So but well, Gabbo, Gabbo, I mean, Gabbo, who's Gabbo? I think they're waiting and waiting for him. There wasn't they said. There's, there's little references in there, is what I'm saying, in modern kind of culture. And, you know, mm. I mean, The Simpsons have done everything, haven't they? 
they've they they did everything to the point that they've predicted everything that's ever going to happen. Yeah, and they did an episode of South Park called The Simpsons Did It. Did they really? If you've not seen that, it's oh, really good. I love that South yeah. Park. Simpsons did it. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. I but what do we'll... you think the meaning of human existence is? Can we wrap up with that? Or... Forty-two. <laughs> yeah, very good. Very good. Um, well, there's the telly. There is. Well, there was. Well, I mean, yeah, the Beckett and people have gone on to say essentially that life is meaningless and the meaning that we put into it is what life actually is all about giving us things to do to pass the time violence sexual gratification uh base needs the costumes uh episodes of bottom interviews with robert lewenon uh and so you trying to say the meaning of existence is this podcast it's part of the meaning of <laughs> existence for all of us three at the moment talking bottom is it Happiness, wisdom, freedom, opportunity and love, right? Isn't that what Rick said on stage? Yeah. That's correct, yeah. Join us next week where we go over the favourites of you, the fans of Bottom and of this podcast. Maybe you're a fan of both. Uh, please get in touch with us at Talking Bottom on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Also send us an electronic mail at 11 Parade at gmail.com and please go over it in as much detail as you can of what bits of bottom that you particularly liked. I think we've done a poll, haven't we, across yeah. Twitter and Facebook and everything. We have. We've, we've Fan favourite moment and episode and series and line. We've done a very general informal poll across social media. Yes, we've asked people for their favourite episode, their favourite moment, their favourite line and their favourite character. Um, so we'll be discussing what people... That isn't Richie and Andy. That isn't Richie and Andy. So we'll be discussing what people say their favourites are next week and we'll talk about what our... And our and, own. And we'll talk about what ours are as well. Well, that's it. have we not already done that? Oh, well, this is, the, I guess... I think nice throughout time. the entire first, second and third series we were doing that, but we're going to do a little summation of it because it'll be the end of this 30th anniversary series, won't it, next time? It will be. That'll be it. Apart from the interviews that we continue to drip feed out because we've got yeah. more of them than we had themed episodes. While we're researching the book mm. that we're writing, if anyone has already pledged, thank you very much. If you, you have, thank you very much. Lovely. <laughs> uh, if you haven't, you can still pledge to buy a copy of the book that we are currently still writing. You can get your name in the back of said book. Just head to unbound.com forward slash bottom. And we've got new pledge rewards as well we've got some can we say what they are the shitted pants and the junk mail <laughs> that's it yeah. yeah i like that the shitted pants that, yeah that, that, i definitely great. want a pair of them yeah i mean i've already got Not them but real shit don't worry <laughs> if we had been <laughs> we found it it's actually cheaper to buy pants and shit in them than <laughs> printed poo on them. as a sort of raffle every 100th pair will have genuine feces on okay thanks a lot for listening see you next time bye goodbye